Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what's happening, man? How are you feeling, man? I'm good, Sam. How you doing? I'm good, man. Um, very excited to have our special guest on this week's episode, David Dan. David is a DJ and producer himself, but also the founder of the LA-based indie record label uh, and company Mind of a Genius. Um, I mean, they have an incredible track record. They helped find and break Zoo and Gallant. Um Grammy winning, Grammy nominated. I mean, there's some like this. This man's definitely been there from ground floor artists all the way through uh, a very elite level. So, um, also want to congratulate him. Definitely encourage you guys to, if you haven't already, uh, just premiered a music video. Uh, I think yesterday after having dropped this episode uh, for you and me. So Google David Dan D A N N uh, you and me, and you'll see it come up. Um, had the fortune of being able to work with David on Knox and, and help with the, the rollout and production of some of the content surrounding this uh, the song, music video, and that good stuff. Um, it's really exciting to hear David kind of peel the curtains back into his process, not only as an artist, but as an entrepreneur. Um, I guess the last thing I'll mention is that it was really great to see uh, and hear his perspective as to this. Uh, I mean, he operates as an indie label, has helped artists break to the highest of levels. Um but then kind of the balance between indie versus majors, the harsh reality of what the competitive landscape really is and how to tap mm-hmm. into the best of all worlds and not just mm-hmm. see it as this either or scenario and figuring out how you can like uh, kind of play into both of them. What do you right. think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, plus one to everything you just said. I also think generally when artists become executives, there's such a unique story every time for the artist that becomes an executive. So you'll see him mention it at first, and I kind of doubled down on it in the interview because making that decision is a very big one, saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop or, or take priority away from what I'm doing to help these other artists. So we kind of go into his decision making for why he did that. Um, what he had learned immediately when he made that transition from going to an artist to an executive and then to back again. And we also went into, you know, like you were saying, Grammy campaigns for Zeus Faded and Galant's Ology. So I think we have a lot of lessons in this one, whether you're an executive or, or what to think about when you're becoming executive or starting your own label or working for a label. But we also have the same the same lessons or, 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 or equal value lessons for, for being an artist. So there's just all around a lot of good insight in this. And I'm excited for people to hear it. It was, a, it was an awesome interview. I literally said that right when we were done, that, it was, that that was awesome. That's what I said to him. So there you go. You, there you have it. From the man himself. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, David, Dan, without any further ado, let's get into it. David, what's good, bro? How are you feeling, man? What's up, Sam? Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, man. Uh, super excited to have you on. Um, I think for starters, I mean, one thing that I'm excited about in this conversation is that you've been able to, you kind of play on both sides, both on the, the business side as a label owner and founder and operator, as well as like a musician and producer yourself. Um, can you just take us back to like the very early stages? Because I think you started more on the side of music, not on the business side. So really just curious, kind of your entrance into the music industry um, and what kind of really led to the founding of Mind of a Genius. Yeah. Um, so for most of my uh, life, I've been going back and forth between the two constantly. 
Um, I think a lot of musicians uh, are, many of them are privileged enough to be able to pursue music because they are maybe taken care of on the you know financial side through their families. And um, then there's obviously a, a bajillion of them that are the opposite. And they're kind of like the hungry, starving musicians that you hear about at the age of like 30 going into like becoming a tennis coach or, you know, something that just pays the bills and being like, fuck man, like being a musician just didn't work out. That's like the classic story. So, um, I think for me, there was, uh, there, there was this entrance to music and playing piano as a young kid, um, that I loved, um, mixed with having to make money as a necessity pretty, pretty early on in my life. Um, so I didn't have the sort of privileged side. I also wasn't on the street. Um, but I was definitely pretty squeezed on, um, the amount of, you know, resources that were available to me. So I had to make do with what I had. And, um, that I think mixed with music became this like almost obsession of how do I make money and also do what I love at the same time? Because I also grew up in a city with a lot of very wealthy people, um, that felt very empty. So where'd you, where'd you grow up? Sorry. So I grew up in Beverly Hills. Okay, um, cool. I was born in New York, but I grew up in Beverly Hills and I was considered like low class compared to, you know, pretty much everyone else I went to school with. Um, and the reason I went to Beverly Hills is because it's free schooling, um, K through 12. If you live there and there's like an area that's very small that has apartments. Um, so my mom made sure that we all lived there so we could get free schooling for the three of us. Um, so, so yeah, so I think again, the, um, combination of both really allowed me to see both sides of life, if you may. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, be able to take care of myself and I also didn't want to be, uh, one of these artists that felt like, you know, I'll be fine just playing guitar or piano and not making anything of myself either. So, um, I think I sort of strayed at middle space. Um, a little bit and that sort of set up the rest of my, I think the rest of my life moving forward from that standpoint. That's awesome, man. No, it's fun to kind of gone back and forth. I mean, when it came to the like launching of mind of a genius, like what was the impetus and what was the turning point where it's like, okay, like, Hey, I have this idea and want to do this as a business and be, it's like, okay, it's, it's go time. Let's get going and make this happen. Yeah. So the, the mind of a genius brand was started for, um, playlists on my iTunes at the time. And that's how I would like, give out playlists or CDs to my friends. Um, and I would put different Mind of the Genius playlists of different um, genres. And eventually after doing that for a few years and started to make my own music, I started to self-release under that moniker um, because I just thought it was really cool and it applied to all my favorite artists. So why not use it? Um, so that name continued on through high school and college as like a podcast and then a label of my own stuff, both not making any money, um, just something cool that was like a promo uh, option for me to give to people. And then eventually, um, I always had my sights set on building a brand off of that name, but I, I didn't always like know when or how it would actually begin. So the brand was set up far in advance of... Um, any sort of like real financial gain or growth um, in that way. And then when I signed my first artist, um, that was when like the company really came to light um, because, you know, we did it independently and then eventually 
not, but in the beginning we were really like, it was, it was the forefront of the story. So, um, that's how it started. That's amazing. And then as far as like starting to build out the, the roster and, and build it into what actually became like a very successful independent label. Um, can you start just by talking about how you went about like finding some of the first artists you signed? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, actually funny enough, zoo and I, um, in the very beginning of our sort of venture together, um, he was, he was producing and I was DJing and he'd come to my shows and we were just like friends through the music space. And our agent at the time was representing both of us. And, um, he ended up being not the, the, uh, most clean with handling the way he dealt with our money, both of us. So, um, I ended up managing Steven in the beginning and firing the agent who introduced us, which was kind of a weird one. Um, and then we got a studio together and it was just him and I producing separately for a very long time. Uh, not for a long time, but maybe for like the first six months. And then after a while, I was like, yo, this kid's way better than me. And I can like probably help him way more than I can help myself in what I'm doing right now. Let me try to, to do this. And I had already been trying to develop other artists before him. And, um, some, you know, were okay. Some didn't work out so well. And this one I knew was really special because it especially with the scene that I knew really well, which is the dance music scene. So um, I decided to, to call a quiz on my own stuff at the time and get back into just helping develop his artistry. And then that's when we did the whole Mind of the Genius Zoo deal um, and, you know, brought Jake on, who was the, the manager. I kind of went like to label and creative um, focus role. Um, and then once he came out and started doing really well, I just kept signing more stuff that I really loved, um, much of which I expected to go much further than it did. Um, and still to this day, I, I, I know I expected it to go um, farther, but also learned why, you know, it didn't. So um, I think it's, it's, it's cool that I've, you know, done the stuff I've done up to now, but um, when I look at like the trajectory of what I'm trying to build, I see this as like a 30 year thing. And, um, most of the last five years have been just like, learning, um, versus necessarily like we've ha we have this great successful record company. I don't feel that like accolade, I think, much as, um, a lot of people like to look at it like. Right, right. Um, I want to dive into a couple of things kind of based on the the story you just told us. One, you sort of said that you felt like you wanted to help Zoo more than you wanted to help yourself. Um, I can relate to that personally because I was an artist and decided to help one of my friends as the first artist that I ended up managing in college um, and ended up getting into artist management afterwards as a career for a little bit. So right. I kind of want to dive into your mindset a little bit for because I, I feel like there's such a misinformation, miseducation of the opportunities that people have in the music industry. Everybody kind of goes to artistry first because they kind of think that's the only way to be in the music industry because they don't know about publicists. They don't know about ARs, They don't know about managers. I guess my question is, at what point, how, how did, what, what things were you thinking of when you kind of decided to help someone before you'd even help yourself? And how do you, how did you know to make that decision? Kind of like dissecting what that, what that process was for you uh, in order to, to take it to that level that you ended up taking it to. So I think through a, a bunch of trials and tribulations of my own failures, um, I, I kind of came to a point where I knew what 
is what are the things in music um, that actually move audience and generate income? And there's really two things um, that that matter in that space. Uh, one is and one comes before the other. Typically speaking, is a song that is undeniably replayable, um, which we refer to as hit songs in the music business. Um, and then the other side to that is the image and the branding that you sell behind that song. And it was much easier for me to, to apply that level of thinking to an outside project or product than to my own stuff. Um, because when you're in your own body and you're trying to do it for yourself as an artist, you don't always know what's best. And that's why having a very brutally honest manager is the best thing you can do. Um, as long as you're open to, to, you know, changing yourself to some degree, right? To meet market and be able to sell yourself, um, then you'll be fine. But in, in, in other words, it's, it was just so much easier for me to apply those lessons that I learned on myself to somebody else, as long as they were open to listening. And he fortunately was, um, for the most of our time together for seven years, um, an incredibly open book. Um, to all the suggestions and um, ideas that I myself had and Jake had um, to giving him. So, uh, you know, that, that's, um, that's a big reason why I think, you know, candidly speaking, the separation was so difficult um, was because that was a product that we created from inception. Um, and it wasn't like someone who walked into my door like a lot with this amazing voice and the key out and all I have to do is like kind of touch some things up and um, give some guidance and mentorship to, um, you know, obviously there's much more than that, but, you know, just comparatively speaking, um, there was a lot of heavy handed work in the creation of, of that first project. Right. Right. Um, and I guess just kind of going back to, you said you, you said you applied to some, some lessons to uh, your artists that you didn't feel like you could apply to yourself, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is what are some thought processes, some lessons that you kind of had to learn right off the bat um, that you didn't necessarily know when you were an artist, that you did have to learn when you started becoming um, someone who supports artists rather than the talent themselves? Yeah, like for example, you know, when you're when you're in the shoes yourself, you're like, I need an agent right now, or I need a publicist right now, or I need this right now, or that right now. And you're you're, you're constantly focusing on a hundred different things because you're looking at other artists' success and you're wondering like, oh shit, how did that artist get there so quick? Or like, you know, why did that artist all of a sudden pop off? And you're only seeing like the work at that point that's in front of you, but you don't know like all the steps that came before that. So I think for me, it was really important to help artists understand that process of what is important to focus on energy-wise and what's not important. And I think that alone is worth so much to an artist because being one myself, I was able to like really be like, look, you don't need to think about, excuse me, your, your photos right now or who the publicist is or what the agent is because there is no agent, there is no PR, there's none of this until we have A, an amazing, you know, quality of work to show, but also B, like there's, there's depth to your, your, your project aesthetically with your pictures and your videos. So there's all these like pre-production things that um, as an artist, I don't think we always think about um, 
Hence why you have, you know, every other day, you have someone that's like really hot for a second and then they're kind of gone just as quickly. So um, we try to build like long-term sustainability as much as we can, even though that's it's so hard to do um, because trends change so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are, those are some of the lessons, I guess, that are applicable. Yeah, no, I love that. When it comes to building that, like that, that depth in branding and narrative and aesthetic, um, what uh, tactically are you really focusing on? Or what are like different questions you're trying to answer? Because I, I mean, in, in theory, um, it's great. But when for our listeners and different artists and managers that are like, yeah, I want to do that. Like, what's your general like framework for approaching that if you had to like deconstruct those different elements? So I think like, that's a great question. And that has also changed so much since I started. Um, in the beginning, it was like very much about clean aesthetic and like high quality and um, logo design and um, sort of that whole like making it feel like really large and big. And then it all of a sudden went very quickly into like personability, um, like how personal you can be to the camera, um, how well can you talk to your phone, um, how well can you just like virtually connect with people and social media has made it so it's like much more personal meaning um so i think now it's it's become a lot of that like how much can you give of yourself um you know to the audience to let them in whereas before um if the artist was like 10 degrees separated from the fans it actually was nice to have a superstar like that you couldn't touch um but it feels like right now everybody who's doing something really well um, is someone that's very also easily accessible, um, mm. which, which unfortunately makes the artist's job in this moment very difficult um, because you can't just be a singer, songwriter, composer. Um, you have to be a full-blown entertainer um, at all times and give some people something to, to bite into. So um, that, I think, again, that's, that's made it harder and the, the landscape... 10 times more saturated than when we started because there's, there's less things to get through in order to get your stuff out. But today there's, you know, you're, everyone's, everyone's on the same playing field, right? Superstar and major label or, or, or not. Um, the only difference is they have more money to spend, but if your product is great, you have the same, the same playing field. So that, that's kind of some of the things that I think matter in branding and aesthetics. Right. One thing that, um, clients used to bring up to me when I was in management was I used to kind of tell them that they did have to express themselves a little bit more on social media than they currently were because it was like a post every two weeks or something like that on everything. Um, yeah. It didn't necessarily, which is a hard, which is a hard thing to ask of people, right? Like you have to be more vulnerable with people on the internet. Like that's a, that's a legitimate thing in sure. terms of branding and stuff. But I do feel like, and this is the one that people always brought up to me when they were arguing against that, which was the situation with Frank Ocean, where he comes into the picture like once every two or three years, he says like two things and then his album goes crazy. But <laughs> I will say for the people listening that think that that's a great tactic to do from the jump. Frank Ocean was also very vulnerable before he did that. He had a whole Tumblr blog. He was pretty active on a bunch of different stuff. And then he withdrew from that, which gave this sense of mystery. It wasn't, you know, we knew who he was. Then he withdrew. It wasn't like, you know, 
we, we we never knew who he was and he was a mystery this entire time. You know, yeah. even her who didn't show her face for however long and wasn't super active um, showing her face. She even had a brand and posted a lot and even had an Instagram that was a um, it was like a sister Instagram to her, her Instagram that actually had her real name on it and stuff that had like 70,000 followers, you right. know? So it's right. just interesting that you bring that up because it's like, there's no, there's kind of no way around it, especially at the beginning. Well, yeah, for sure. Not the beginning. And also right now, because the biggest medium is TikTok um, for sharing new music, like that, that is all interactive constantly with the fans. So I, listen, those conversations about artists need to be more active on social media are my, are my least favorite to have. Um, I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to tell an adult to post more um, and to do something that I don't want to do myself, right? So how can I preach something that I don't do right. to someone else? And that makes being, I think, a manager uh, and an executive as you get older, more difficult in general, um, which is one of the most difficult parts about the business for everybody is as you get older, you get less in touch and you see new waves of people coming into the structure um, that are a part of the scene that you are disconnected from. So uh, again, it's, it's, it's uh, difficult for, for multiple reasons, but that specifically, that conversation is really hard. Frank came up during a time when social media wasn't the biggest thing yet and used different mediums to, to you know, gain that audience. Um, and also happened to make one of the most amazing albums in the last 10 years. Um, you know, all of those things help. Uh, his story of being with Tyler and ready to Beyonce, all of these things were planted or not planted or whatever, but helps bring the project to surface. Right. Yeah. No, it's crazy. I mean, one thing you mentioned, um, I mean, you kind of spoke to the fact that, like, there's, uh, as you kind of deconstructed, you mentioned this notion of having, like, an undeniably repeatable song, dialing in on the branding, and then now you're starting to allude towards the, the kind of the marketing side of the equation. Like, um, obviously, it's evolved and will continue to evolve, but, like, how how does that, as an emerging artist and having seen artists undergo such a rapid ascent, um, where do you, and even now just working on new artists, like where, where, where are you kind of putting focus towards with regards to trying to build an audience and build a fan base so you can get that momentum? Yeah. Um, you know, right now it's, I've never seen, a, like, I never seen anything like what's happening right now because it feels like the only breeding ground for new audience in a real way is on TikTok. And if you know how to use that application, you're, you're your money. And if you don't, then you're kind of left behind at the moment. Um, the, all traditional ways of anything have kind of been broken down. So um, right now, it's actually it's one of our hardest parts is like trying to figure out where we're, we're getting new fans and new listeners from. Um, and those are kind of our day-to-day -day conversations. Um, in, in trying to figure out. So it's a great question, but um, the answer at this moment is trying to tap into other people's audiences and expose um, their audience, our audience. So whether that's gamers or whether that's um, NBA teams and their social media teams and getting them to put our stuff up with TikTokers, like it's kind of just a mix of all of that. And then the other... 50% is the incestual, uh, incestualness that goes on through DSPs and the rest of the business. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, in that vein, how, how is it? I mean, 
the ancestral, like that side of the business operating as like an indie. Um, and I mean, where do you see kind of like the, the value in being an indie versus when does it make sense for even as a, as a indie record label to like partner with bigger labels? Um, I think it makes sense or it has made sense in the past when you have uh, something that's already call it five or 10, 15 million plays deep and you want to keep funding things to take them further and you just can't afford to because you're not getting paid enough to match what the spend costs. So, you know, you need a financier at that point. Um, other than that, I think majors obviously don't really play a big part in development, um, nor do they need to. Um, we, we kind of fill that gap with the artists that we go after and we try to sign. Um, and now there's so many options for an artist because most distributors are giving advances and taking such little on the other side. Um, in terms of long-term copyright share or master ownership. So artists have a lot of different options um, in how they want to do deals and structure them. But we try to bring a level of cultural health to each artist in terms of like features or getting other people's songs or obviously play with support. But um, we're kind of scrunched up between in a major and a distributor or a modern distributor. Um, and we, we do the best we can at like finding things that will help our artists like very uh, microscopically speaking um, mm -hmm. versus like the here there's 25 all the card options at this company choose when you want and we'll adjust our percentage to that or um, a major that says you know here's a million bucks we own your master and we're going to throw $200,000 at radio and if it works great if it doesn't then you know see you later yeah yeah for sure um yeah no i mean it's interesting and i think it's got to be nice too from the artist perspective being able to operate with kind of more like boutique team like know who they're talking about and i have to worry about like massive separate departments when in reality it's a much more kind of like teamwork endeavor yeah. on, on your side too i feel like there's also like you do bring very valuable perspective having been so close on the actual like um i mean not only are you kind of like the founder of the label but like you are a producer yourself. Like, you know, your relationship with understanding like the sounds that do have that repeatability, the, um, like you, you're able to bring a different layer of like support to the artists on your roster in that regard. Like from your perspective, like as you've continued to evolve in your taste and uh, I mean, even with the, the recent releases that you, you have, um, like what are certain things that you try to be intentional about in crafting your sound? And this is for going to you as the, like the artist, David. Yeah, um, I think for me, I I had a really hard time in the beginning of my DJ career figuring out if I wanted to go underground or commercial. Um, I remember there specifically being this moment when I was seeing like the Afro Jacks and the David Getters um, and the Swedes like really start taking off commercially and um, like the Jamie Joneses and Solomons and stuff like really going the other way. And this middle space essentially started to dissipate. And I had to choose one way or the other. And luckily, that's when I had met Steven because I didn't want to go one way or the other. I kind of wanted to be this like hybrid of both. Um, and you can't really do that um, because America, much like a lot of markets, need to place people in a box, right? He's this or he's that or she's this or she's that. So, um, 
I think with my own stuff, I'm trying to walk this line of like commercial, what a lot of people will like and listen to, and it can get your attention right away. Um, but also have like remnants of real writing and real musicality behind it. So, um, it's not like all the way like a, you know, commercial top 40, but it's also not Solomon or Jamie Jones or, you know, I love those guys, but it's not as uh, instrumental based most of the time. So uh, I'm trying to achieve like the perfect combo of both, which actually that middle space right now feels like a huge opening for um, and dance music specifically because uh, there's just not a lot going on in that space at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, in that vein too, like, uh, I know you got you and me and some other like stuff in the works. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's kind of in store for the rest of the year? Uh, I mean, it's, it's so as we enter 2021. So, so I think we, um, we finished, um, pretty much an album with the material right before quarantine, uh, started and we went, we started making a lot more music during quarantine. Um, I was going to put out, a lot more music by now but the thing with dance music is, is that there's nowhere to play it out it's really really difficult yeah. to sell and to, to get people in so um our Let's music was in club Tulum right now seems yeah, like they, they don't give a fuck dude it's absurd bro no. I got a boy in Tulum right now you wouldn't, you wouldn't know there was anything going on yeah. like yeah. <laughs> No COVID, <laughs> but yes, agreed. The rest of the so, world, yes, yeah. So we couldn't. There was just we felt like it was it was kind of um, it was not pointless. But how are people going to share the music if there's nowhere to hear it and play it out? So we just put a hold on everything. Um, you know, with that said, this year we're going to be putting out um, probably another like six or seven songs by the end of the year. Um, with a music video for you and me and, um, you know, visuals to follow and build the story. But I don't, I don't know really what the schedule is going to be overall because, you know, again, I can't commit to putting music out in the space until there's uh, an environment that supports it. Otherwise, it kind of just like lives in the air. Um, yeah. It's hard for people to, I, I think, experience it the right way. Yeah. No, it's tough too. I mean, it just goes back to the point as far as like, uh, marketing. I mean, the the answer that you mentioned was kind of like blown up on TikTok, and without in the absence of like live shows, it literally does feel like it's just TikTok. If you're a new artist, it's like so competitive to grow on um, any other socials and TikTok. Like you can't go viral, but yeah, I mean, like the being able to actually play stuff out is such a critical part. Um, not even just dance music, but even just like any genre. Um, like. I mean, supporting yeah. uh, for like headlining acts, uh, like these are all tried and true tactics that have just been like taken off the table. Totally. Right. Agree. Right. Um, now that you're kind of getting back to reprioritizing your own artistry, I'm wondering if your career as a, as a executive has helped you um, become a better artist? And if so, how so? Whether that be from the artists you were around or whether that's from the energy of of the things that you were going through at the time, just kind of like how does that contribute to uh, your, your growing artistry at this point? That's a good question. Um, I think a lot of the things that I was disappointed with as an executive in my artist, I'm cognizant of when speaking to the rest of my team, whether that's the Knox team, uh, whether that's my manager, whether that's mm -hmm. the publicist, like, I think 
understanding the things that my artists would or wouldn't do with their teams helped me see it that way um, with those surrounding me. And I think also, um, I mean, I apply, I, I, I approach my own artist stuff like pretty, um, like, I guess from like a pretty pure perspective where I don't really want the outside stuff coming in. But um, I don't know, I think from the executive side, it's just helped me realize even more so how important a song is um, in, in building an artist's career. Um, and also realizing that like there is no guaranteed advancement in one's career unless you can continuously put out hit songs. Um, and most artists die and go away after right. they're unable to do that any longer. Um, and that's just the nature of the music business. Um, like you, you know, realizing that you're not owed anything. Um, you're, you know, like you're, you're lucky if you are able to get fans and people that support you to begin with. Um, and that, you know, most likely that next generation that comes in isn't going to give a fuck about you because they have their own people that they grew up with. Um, and that's kind of the old school versus the new school battle at the time is, oh, well, you think, you know, a little this better than Jay-Z? Like, well, you know, but like Jay-Z to us is different than whoever that little person is, the, you know, little baby or the baby is the current 15 or 16 year old, right? So, mm-hmm. um I think just knowing, I think having like the wisdom of all those things really helps my approach to my own stuff. Um, but, but no, I don't, I don't try to let it like dictate the, the way that I take things. Um, but it's, it's just helped me realize the process a little bit better. For right. Myself. And part of it, obviously, um, is you growing as a person and how that affects the music in itself as music is an extension of who you are. And I imagine that even things that don't necessarily seem like they're directly correlated with how you may put together a record, it may end up changing how it sounds because you've grown as a person in general. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I kind of want to dive into uh, the Grammy win and the Grammy nom that you've had with Zoo and Gallant. Um, I guess... I mean, this is this will be a big question for both of them, but I guess kind of one at a time. What was the campaign like? Uh, whether that's marketing slash Grammy campaign is what I say in general. Once if it culminates in in a nomination or in a win, right. so for, I guess for for those two artists, what were their Grammy campaigns like, and what were some of the inflection points that you think kind of led to those results? So everything was Zoo and Faded. That song was already just like an international bomb at the mm-hmm. year. Um, so I think that teed it up pretty nicely. We ended up, uh, giving the record of Columbia as a license and they were the ones that really headed the Grammy campaign. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that song was already on its way, um, and on so many charts at that point where it was kind of like impossible to avoid. Right. Um, and dance music again is not so large that if you have like one, if, if you're one of the five hits that year that occur, then, you know, you're really at the forefront of stuff. And then with the lot, um, I think we knew we had this just amazing album called Ology from him. And if we got it in front of the people at the Grammys, they would love it. And luckily with the help of Felicia, um, who was our publicist at Warner at the time, um, she was really able to get it in front of all the right people. Um, and Galat had done stuff with Seal and John, uh, Elton John that year. Um, and it had a couple of very big moments live on tour as well um, with John Legend, um, even though I came a little bit after. But those, like all those moments, I think throughout the year really helped give us the story to go to the Grammys with and, and get them intrigued. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting because they both are kind of on. They both kind of got there two completely different ways. Like, I think we all kind of know what um, it feels like to see a song or to see an artist get so big. It's like, oh, they have to be nominated. Like that. They, right. they, like there's. They just had such a massive year. They've got to be right. nominated. The music is good. It was a massive success. Very clearly, we know what that looks like when it when it comes out, right? Like we know who's going to be nominated for a Grammy. We know what songs. Some songs are going to be nominated for a Grammy. Some of them are just like, oh, that makes sense completely. Right. But then for Gallant, it sounds like there was also some strategizing involved there to be like, hey, this album is really special. How do we get it in front of the right people? Which I think is a super, both super interesting ways to, in order to get kind of to the same result. Well, we, you know, we knew Gallant was just such a special talent and if we were able to give enough things to talk about surrounding him that people would listen um so we we you know spent a lot of money doing those things and setting those things up and knowing that they would be successful um and accompany the album itself really well so um you know you really got to like believe in every, you know that artist unconditionally and radically uh to go and do those things and even take them back um, cause a lot of the time it doesn't work, but with him, it was like when you saw him perform live, like it was just this like religious experience. It's um, funny. His head's like right over your shoulder. I just realized uh, <laughs> on, yeah, on your yeah, wall. Yeah. yeah. I was like, Oh, there he is right there. He's looking yeah. at you. There you go. <laughs> so in this, in this project, what we did was, and in this one, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's the right time. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that was probably the biggest contributing factor to the launching thing. That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, I guess one kind of, as we come towards the close here, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective because it does seem like indie labels have been getting uh, a lot more shine. I do think oftentimes it is interesting because if you do look at like the market share of like the top 100 or like the Billboard Hot 100, like it still is like heavily, like mass majority, like 90% plus dominated by like major labels. Do you still see a... Uh, over the course Sam, of the next five, let me ask a, let me ask a clarifying question. When you say dominated by major labels, do you mean JVs as well that are under major labels, or do you mean major labels themselves? It's combination, I presume. Combination. Okay, just yeah. wanted to clear that for the listeners. Yeah. Do you see indie um, indie labels starting to take back more of that throne, potentially per like Jordan's caveat, without the need of a joint venture, or do you just see, I guess. Uh, yeah, like do you see it? Do you see a power shift occurring at all between majors and indies, and indies getting more of that market share on their own? Um, I don't know my full thousand percent honest feedback. Uh, yes. No, I don't, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think as long as it remains as difficult as it is to make real money off streaming for artists, and major labels have the backing of corporate money to spend on signing those artists, there's always going to be this like moment of eyes wide open. This is a life changing moment for me. If I sign with this major, um, instead of pursuing it myself, because the likelihood of pursuing yourself, independently and actually making it is so small compared to the, the, the chances of you just making this money from this major. 
um, and essentially buying yourself out. Um, that divide is so vast that especially in a space where there's nothing guaranteed as an artist, there's no job, there's, you know, like this is in Germany where they pay you like a salary um, for being a musician and that's a part of the culture. There will always be uh, this, this need or this want for a big check because it's too hard to make money off streaming. Um, and the majors control most of the streaming charts anyways. So there is this massive monopoly that's happening. And in order for an artist to even recoup a fraction of, of something that they spend on their project, you got to hit a million dollars, a million streams. And hitting a million streams, major or not major, is not easy. So in a million streams, three to four thousand bucks, right? You're 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 not talking forty grand. Um so that makes it really, really difficult to exist in that middle space. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um no, I mean it's I think it's the it's a strong reality that I think a lot of people too, why it's often very much like over glamorized with regards to like being indie, staying indie, when in reality, oftentimes beyond just the competitive advantage that some of these companies have, I mean, it's just the, the resource to make that massive push. Um, so with that said, man, David, thank you so much for coming on. I think everything you've been able to accomplish and are, are still, I mean, still uh, lots ahead of you. So really excited to see it as things thank continue you, to evolve, man. And excited yeah, to hear you play out one of these records once that's the thing again, man. Uh, me too, man. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you, Jordan. Absolutely. Have a good one. Appreciate Thanks, it. Guys. Man, well, that was a great episode. I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on breaking artists, the importance of really trying to figure out those those songs that have that kind of repeat factor, dialing in on the aesthetic, on the branding. I mean, I think he's a, a really smart entrepreneur, looks at it from a very art, like artist-centric perspective and focuses a lot on the art and the quality of the product, um, but then also is able to couple that with his, his deep understanding of the, the business end and, and how to really uh, build the snowball and get the, the dominoes falling to the big bag. <laughs> exactly. That's all the dom as long as it leads to the big bag and the dominoes are falling to that big bag, you're going in the right place. There it is. Um, but yeah, man, I thought it was a super informative and awesome interview. I think one thing that sticks out to me immediately is how Zoo and Galat got to the Grammys in two different ways. How, you know, Zoo's faded was a little bit in your face. It was, you know, we all know those songs, those albums, those artists who are going to be nominated for Grammys. It just only makes sense to, if they didn't, it would be an like entirely huge snub. I think that was the case for Zoo. For Galant, there was a little bit more stra uh, strategy and finesse there, which I thought was a super interesting thing to kind of dive into. And also, um, you know, we've seen artists become executives, but we haven't seen many artists go back to their artistry. And I think that's super interesting and awesome, actually because he learned a lot as an executive. He learned a lot hearing a lot of other artists, working with a lot of other artists, and is now able to take it to the next step to say, okay, this is what I want to do with my artistry now. I know what I want to do with it, and I want to take steps towards doing that at the same time as being executive. I, I just think generally that's a super interesting route to take. People always say, you know, all 
all all people in the I think it's like all people in the music industry wanted to be artists or were artists at some point, right? And I kind of talk about that in the episode a little bit because it's all we know. But you know, it's really awesome that he's going back to it and and, and doubling down on it. I'm super excited to see what happens in, in 2021 and moving forward. Thousand percent. Well, uh appreciate y'all for tuning in. That's it for this week. We out. <laughs>